Hey everybody, welcome back to uh, Two Idiots Take on the World. Today we're going to be talking about capitalism and uh, we brought on uh, one of our friends, Hannah. So Hannah, do you want to introduce yourself a little bit? Hey, um, hi everyone. I'm Hannah. I'm an incoming sophomore um, studying human bio and health policy at USC. Um, yeah, I don't know a lot about capitalism, but I have a lot of opinions about it. So enjoy the next hour or so of us to be just talking. Yeah, exactly. I mean, honestly, none of us really have like the strongest opinions. We're all mostly like idiots here, uh, but then we invited an expert on. So, exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So basically, I guess, well, first off, I think just for anyone who didn't really know, because Adrian and I have kind of pretty well established our views over the course of this podcast, like, I'd say that I'm more inclined to like, I support capitalism in general. And I would say that I'm more of a federalist. And like, I think that uh, regulation on the free market should best be left to the states and localities who can regulate themselves a lot better than a federal government can. And Adrian, you can express your views as well. Um, yeah, I mean, I really don't like labels on my views too much, but um, I, I would say mostly I am I support capitalism, I support personal liberties, and I support free markets rather than government intervention. We can first talk about, I think, generally, what do you think are some of the benefits of capitalism? Because I mean, it's the system we've had for a while. Hopefully, there's some benefits. Mm -hmm. I think definitely capitalism is great for entrepreneurship and innovation. Um, on campus, I am part of a social impact consulting club um, known as Los Angeles Community Impact. And like, even though um, they're more about nonprofits, I had to learn about like, you know, a little bit of background of like social enterprises as well. Um, and just connecting back to like my basic econ knowledge, I can definitely see why um, letting the market you know, kind of dictate itself and letting people, consumers respond to the market definitely um, inspires innovation, especially when you are profit motivated. It, you know, forces people to think of better ways to do um, old processes and forces people to think of new ideas that don't yet um, is, exist in the market. So I think definitely in that regard, um, capitalism is fantastic. I also think as like, as more of an individualist, I guess, I don't really like, um, I don't know. I don't know how comfortable I am with like government intervention, um, even though I think I am more of a socialist democratic leading person than either Adrian or Siddhar. I think letting the market and like having that individual freedom is definitely a benefit of capitalism. I'm just not sure how comfortable I am with the implications of that freedom. Yeah. yeah I, think I, think, I think, yeah, you kind of summarize what I feel personally are like the biggest like benefits of capitalism and something that's like really hard to produce artificially through any sort of government intervention, which is the idea of like innovation and coming up with completely new processes. Because instead of like in any scenario where a government was involved and in any part in innovation, it would be a select number of people who are innovating versus with capitalism in a free market, every single person in a population has the potential to innovate and bring their innovation to the market. And yeah, so. I think that would, for me, it's definitely the biggest plus that capitalism has. Yeah, Adrian, what do you think about this? 
Yeah, I think the, the question of economic growth and innovation and entrepreneurship is kind of, it's unquestioned that capitalism does that the best. Um, I think what Hannah brings up is interesting in that what are the implications of that? When you look at questions of inequalities in society and how capitalism creates um, wealth divisions and classism, et cetera, the question is, is that a um, worthy detriment to bring on in favor of increased economic growth, et cetera? Um, and I think that what I would argue is that um, in, in, in certain amounts, I think that inequality being a symptom isn't on its own an inherent issue. I think that capitalism is um, creates wealth, and though the wealth may not be equal, it's better than no wealth at all. Um, but I think maybe Hannah can comment on the, like, what kind of implications she was talking about and why she would describe herself as more of a democratic socialist. Yeah, so I think the primary implications that I have are that of inequality. Um, so, like, inequality, I think capitalism comes in two ways. The first one is just the pure wealth gap. You have these corporations um, amassing wealth, and then you have all these people who are providing labor um, for these corporations that don't have necessarily the same opportunity gap to, um, you know, pursue that immense amount of wealth for themselves. So, I think that's like one part of like the inequality and like the implications that I was talking about. Um, but the other thing that I see is that um, capitalist systems are pretty intertwined in my opinion with other inequalities like environmental inequality, racial inequality. And I think um, a lot of these systemic issues that contribute to these inequalities in different forms are perpetuated by um, capitalism and capitalist thinking. Like if we look at healthcare, um, I'm like trying to do like a healthcare study on my own um, during the summer since I have a lot more time. And when I look at how insurance companies first began um, and when they weren't motivated necessarily by profit, there it was like pretty much built for the consumer. Like the people who were subscribed to these um, insurance companies were able to get like all of their pay covered. Um, they were able to stay for a long time without having to pay any extra money. And I think it was like Blue Cross or Blue Anthem that was like the first insurance company. And about 20 years after they initially started, they had this issue of like profit. And they were like, oh, we keep, you know, bleeding money. Um, and that's when people started to, you know, slowly transition this into like a for-profit model. And then boom, we have our modern day healthcare crisis where people aren't even able to, um, you know, get health insurance. And if they don't get health insurance, um, our healthcare system has just warped into a way that you can't afford health, any form of like health care. Um, and so I think that's like, I like went on for a little bit just because this is an area that I'm pretty um, passionate about. But yeah, I think those are the other implications of a capitalist system. And even though the innovation, so that's where I differ a little bit, like this innovation and this entrepreneurship um, is great. But at the cost of, you know, people, I think that's just pretty, from my standpoint, at least that's pretty unethical. And that's why I think I prefer to see or like label myself as more of a democratic socialist thinking where the government has more of a regulatory role in how these corporations are allowed to, you know, build up and have, the, you know, let the government have a little bit more say in what extent are we going to allow these inequalities to grow and um, how much are we going to control for that. So that's, um, some of the inequalities and the implications of capitalism that I was hinting at. Basically, like, for some reason, yeah, I, I really don't know that much about the healthcare system. I did one, I think, one debate topic on, like, drug prices, and 
that was pretty much like the entire debate. It was basically how do we balance innovation of new drugs versus accessibility of the old drugs that we already do have. And that's where definitely the implications of like capitalism and inequality come in to see like, uh, I forgot exactly the numbers, but it was the innovation over the last 20 or so years has saved, I think, millions of lives across the world. But then at the same time right now, uh, people can't afford like the basic drugs that they need that are prescribed to them and their own health insurance. And that's definitely a huge implication that has to be balanced. And, and yeah, also speaking on something Hannah said earlier, which was about environmental inequality. That's something Adrian and I, I think both kind of agree on and something we discussed before, which is that capitalism really doesn't have an climate, preserve the environment, anything to that effect, because like- It can. It can, it can, sure. But that requires some government intervention in that, which would, which is why both of us support like a carbon tax to ensure that companies are like, yeah, co companies do like align their incentives with that of the planet and that of the environment. So yeah, Adrian, you can speak a little bit more on the other inequalities that Hannah mentioned. Yeah, so I think my general view of capitalism and how government um, should intervene in it is that the government should set the rules of the game of capitalism, but it shouldn't play it. So I think that the idea of, for example, that capitalism doesn't incentivize environmental protection, that's totally true. But however, with certain governmental intervention, it can. For example, putting a price on carbon emissions now means that companies are now incentivized to create innovation in green technology, et cetera. And that's using that profit-centered motive of capitalism to then benefit consumers and the world. So I think that like, the idea of capitalism as a set of incentives in a game that's being played can be shifted to benefit society in certain ways through certain strategic interventions. Um, another example is the idea of healthcare. Um, and I'm not totally educated on this, like to um, be able to spew off a bunch of facts. But um, one thing that I have been reading about recently is the Singaporean model of healthcare. And maybe Hannah knows more about this than I do. But um, one thing that um, is written about it is that the way that they have their per capita health spending 75% lower than us is that they allow for true price competition. So for example, when you go to like buy um, drugs or when you go to in for a procedure, um, you don't actually know how much it costs. Like off the top of your guys' head, can any of you tell me how much an MRI costs? Like no one has any idea. Um, but the idea is that in Singapore, it's like a marketed like thing that, okay, like this, ho this hospital offers MRIs for uh, $5,000. This one is 2000 and then they compete and they try and like basically earn your dollar through competition. Meanwhile, in the U.S. system, we have this kind of like crony capitalist thing where insurance companies try and defraud you and whatever. And I think that as long as capitalism is voluntary and honest, that it can do wonders. And the idea that government intervenes to make those two things happen for it to be voluntary and honest, then, then what happens is you, you use that set of incentives and that innovation to then benefit both producer and consumer. And that's the only system that's been able to do that as long as it's done properly. So um, speaking a little bit about environmental um, and green capitalism is actually the term um, that people use it for any viewers who want to look into that more. The problem with that thinking um, is that yes, we can use capitalism to incentivize people to like switch to renewables. But then the problem is that even renewables cost materials and resources and finite resources that um, isn't necessarily just coming in the form of like, you know, carbon. And I think that's where I want to challenge your thinking a little bit, like protecting, you know, the earth and 
climate change isn't just only about like this carbon, which is why like, I think a carbon tax is awesome. It is the first step, but I think where capitalism fails in that is that after you have this carbon tax, what's the next step, right? I think capitalists um, and like more conventional capitalists would think that, okay, we have this carbon tax, we're gonna, you know, incentivize corporations to do the right thing, but that's only in that one area, right? Of like, you know, either not using carbon and like looking for something else. Whereas I think in my opinion, environmental justice and like environmental inequalities come in different um, avenues aside from just carbon. So it can come in like protecting the environment, like biodiversity, or it can be reducing our carbon footprint, or it could be, you know, uh, make sure that we don't put like our chemicals and like waste into the rivers, oceans, etc. And so I don't think capitalism really has the answer for that yet because at a certain point, um, even when we're thinking about it in terms of green capitalism, it's only green capitalism if we see a benefit. So at the end, um, if it comes into question, do we choose profit or do we choose the environment? I think capitalists would choose, um, let's choose the profit because that's how, you know, the system is built and that's how the system like, you know, continues to sustain itself, which is why, um, especially with things regarding to the environment, like, I only think green capitalism takes us one step, but then um, it stops at a certain point. Um, so that's my problems with like green capitalism. And for the Singaporean um, model, like I don't know anything about Singapore's health model, but I think it's fascinating that they do that. And I think in that case, um, that is a pretty good like leverage of capitalism. Does like, do you know if like the government like mandates that they have to be transparent about it? Yeah, I believe so. And um, just, Again, promoting that honesty, like setting the rules of the game from the government, I think is like beneficial. Yeah, no, and that's, it's an interesting idea that you bring up, like this idea mm -hmm. of honesty. Um, there was a paper that I read, or a book like a couple years ago, um, while I was doing some like research for myself, but um, essentially what the authors were talking about is like, they're talking about it in terms of capitalism being based on values. And so I think these mm -hmm. two writers are, authors are Christian, they're like, Milbank and Panks or something. I, I can send you the paper later if you're interested in reading it. But basically what they said is that um, the reason why capitalism and like neoliberalism writ large has failed is because um, they don't have like these guiding values and their values were like fraternity, um, justice, equality. And what they were arguing is that if we have an economy that is based upon these values and capitalism could work a lot better for everyone. I think the exact term they called it was known as like the civil economy. So yeah, I think like their paper, it was very interesting. I think Adrian, what you just said about honesty um, kind of like is intertwined with that. But I think the problem is that like in, you know, modern day society, like these values about justice or equality or fraternity aren't necessarily put at the forefront. And I think at least in my mind, um, the only value that I see capitalism really um, vouching for is profit. So, and I think one of the reasons why um, I don't like to consider myself a pure supporter of capitalism is because it's pretty inseparable to me, um, capitalism and profit. And so I think I have a very difficult time reimagining a system where we can um, use capitalism because I think to do so and to inject these other values means that we have to totally reimagine the system from the ground up. Yeah, I think that kind of strikes upon one, like, I guess, qualm I have with capitalism, which is that, like, there are so many other, like, for example, the, I think the biggest, like, thing that I know about how the economy is doing so far is, like, the GDP, right? That's what everyone uses as the metric 
to calculate that. But I mean, this is something Andrew Yang brought up and I'm assuming the authors of the paper Hannah read brought up, which was that why does like economic growth matter more than, for example, uh, just general wellness of the society, suicide rates, child mortality, um, so many other different metrics we could be using to measure the success of the society. And yes, if capitalism is set up in a method that only promotes like one profit motive, that doesn't necessarily lead to like the best outcomes. I think one of the, the clearer examples to me was like the example of like social media in that the profit motive for social media is to get as many people on social media as possible because then those people are viewing the ads. Social media companies get the most amount of money, which means that they have an incentive to create an addiction for younger kids or just anyone to be on social media. And I don't know, I mean, I'm, I haven't exactly looked into the studies of how that addiction affects people's like well-being, but I can't imagine it's like beneficial. So that's something that I think like, that's just one area that I wanna like ask you guys, like where do you, do you think like capitalism could fix that? Do you think it's only fixable through government intervention? What needs to happen? Okay, well, I was gonna say that like the, the intersection of like um, addictive policies and capitalism is an interesting one. Um, and I, I think that um, for me, I, I choose to see the consumer as more empowered than that and, as, and to be able to have that freedom to decide whether they want to go on Facebook or go on Instagram or, or not. Um, like, for example, like um, for a, a few weeks during quarantine, I just kind of got tired of it and deleted both the apps. I didn't want to see it, see it anymore. Um, but I think like the idea of how companies try and get you hooked onto their product, um, it, I think it definitely happens. But I think that the freedom of consumers to not engage with the company's product is still kind of a hallmark of capitalism and that in a lot of command economies, you don't have the ability to not use a product. For example, if there's only one producer, which is the government, and they're putting out a product, you don't have the freedom to not use that product. I think that's a much larger form of addiction because now you're, you're like legally addicted to this one monopolist product that you can't actually choose to decide to you know, use a different variant of it. So um, what I wanted to say is, before, like, I watched this documentary on, like, advertising um, to children, and I think it was either, like, before the 1970s or before 1980s, like, there was no such thing as advertising to children. Like, it was just, mm -hmm. like, kind of, like, taboo and almost established by corporations that they wouldn't advertise to children. But then um, one company did it, and then people realized, these corporations realized that there was, like, this niche area that no company had ever targeted before. And suddenly they had found an entire new consumer base by having ads um, marketed to children. And so basically the documentary went on to talk about addiction and also just like, um, you know, putting like consumerist materialistic like behavior and like ideologies in like younger children. But I think to push back on what Adrian said, like I think the reason why I would be in favor of government regulation is that especially for children or like the unaware consumer where they don't have the ability to, you know, kind of like form these independent opinions of their own. I think government regulation is absolutely necessary. Like I think just child development, developmental, like psychology wise, like I don't think any expert has ever said, Oh, the children are smart enough um, and wise enough to make these. I would agree actually. Yeah. So I think that's why in the specific case of children, I would be in favor of like government regulation. Um, but I also think government regulation should come even for adults. And so there's this idea called the government providing um, people with like nudges. Um, and so these nudges are essentially like not laws, but basically like, I guess like advertisements or like small little like um, pushes for people to like choose like the best um, 
like choice for them. So like in the case of like choosing healthy foods, um, the person who like described this idea of like a nudge is like, what if we made it um, necessary for advertisers to like make how much calories is like this product has in like the very center of the package. Like that would be considered a nudge because you're not necessarily making an opinion about it. Like it's not saying that, oh, this is bad for you. But by having this like very clear health metric within the packaging, you're allowing the consumer to um, make that choice for themselves. Um, and so this is like a form of nudge. And I think government nudges are something, I don't know why like this is just being trendy, but I think that's something that should be um, included like and mandated, I think, not only in terms of like our general health, but also, you know, consumer like buying things, like when you're choosing insurance policies or when you're trying to like, you know, choose a car. Like I think these government nudges would be something that would be totally helpful. Like if you had it in for cars, like you could maybe, you know, encourage people to use more environmental friendly cars, like buy hybrids or something. And so, yeah, I think like government regulation, maybe it's not to the point where like the law says you can only have like one type of car and this car has to be like hybrid. But I think if the government were more involved to lead people to choose better choices, um, maybe that's like my like label. Like I just want like a happy medium between like complete government intervention and absolutely no government intervention, which I think capitalism likes to rely on the latter part of it. Yeah, I think what I would say is, I guess with respect to the nudges, I think like in a lot of instances, it's pretty clear where you're supposed to nudge like for example, you should nudge kids to eat more healthy food. But like in terms of like uh, in terms of a lot of different other products, the problem I would see is like, how does the government decide what the best choice is for the consumer? And, and then if they provide those nudges in that direction, I'm sure they can do that. I'm sure that's feasible. But like, how can they decide that? And I think Another avenue, I'm not exactly like very well educated on this, but it would be in terms of like cigarette usage in that I think there has like been a much like very, very recent like increase in the amount of, I'm not sure if these are nonprofits, I'm not sure exactly like who they are, but there's a lot of advertising about the like harms of cigarette usage or even I think just like vaping, like any other form of like e-cigarettes or just in general, like those addictive substances. And I don't know if that's the government like nudging us or if that's just nonprofits acting up and like trying to educate the public. But I think in either case, like that's, I guess, more of an ideal solution if it's a nonprofit, because that would be something to the effect of like people are deciding, the community is deciding what is the best and what is the worst choices and then nudging the society in that direction. Yeah, I think, Sid, what you said, like that's also the problem that I have with like nudges um it's that it essentially like you're getting rid of individuals freedom of choice um to some extent right because you're trying to you already have like a conclusion in mind and you're trying to lead someone to conclusions um so i think in grayer areas like maybe not you know with like cigarette use i think it's pretty clear that we should nudge people to not smoke um just because it's so bad for them but i think in grayer areas like i totally agree with you um i wouldn't know what what extent of government intervention is healthy and that's obviously something for like people to you know figure out on their own to like these experts to see like what kind of like nudge and what degree of nudging that um we want but i think the problem that i have with relying only on nonprofits is that 
you know, especially for things that may be more controversial, like for cigarette uses, it's pretty, I think for the most part, not controversial, right? But then like for a controversial topic, um, what if people aren't incentivized to like nonprofits to organize and like create these um, campaigns that like would lead to better choices? Like I'm not, that's why I think like coming at it from like a more systemic perspective, like um, like a government do like producing these nudges um, has some benefit um, because, you know, it's not always the case where people are going to step up and do the right thing. And like, obviously with like government intervention, it doesn't have to only come in terms of like nudges. I think to switch the conversation a little bit, we were like talking a lot about like more of like, you know, not corporation stuff for now, but I just want to quickly turn the conversation into like corporations. I think right now um, the government very much supports these large corporations um, to do pretty much whatever the heck that they want to do. Um, and I think that is a terrible thing, especially like for the case of Amazon. I have a lot of thoughts on Amazon and I'm sure all of you are very well educated with the ethical concerns of Amazon. But then in 2018, Amazon ha did not have to pay any federal taxes, right? And so I think that is like a huge indicator of even if the government is like, like the government doesn't have to be like Amazon you're doing like terrible shit right now to these people you need to stop but then I think like the policy that they have of like not asking for federal taxes like not pushing them to pay taxes in a way enables them to continue their behavior and like not change the way that they're doing things right now and so when it comes to corporations especially that is where I feel that the government needs to take more of a role and I'm sure you too might disagree like Sid being a federalist I'm sure you'd want like I don't know states to do their own thing or Adrian you might want corporations to figure it out on their own but I think for me like it is a very strong stance of the government not saying anything especially to corporations that are that large in a sense is enabling them um, and there is no other force to really check them like how like nonprofits they have to go through so much work in order to you know even build like a small group of people, dedicated staff. How are they gonna fight against like Amazon or like larger corporations? And so I think when it comes to like bigger structures, um, that is why I think I'm more of a democratic socialist than you two for sure are. So th there were two things that I wanted to talk about. So uh, the first thing was like the idea of nudges, then I'll get onto the Amazon stuff. But um, I, I think that I agree with Sid in that um, I, I wouldn't want my like taxpayer dollars going to a government bureaucratic body to then advocate for a cause that I might not believe in. I think that, I mean, smoking sure is very cut and dry, but I think it can get into a gray area very fast. Um, and that I think that the nudges, like the, when Hannah was talking about the idea of like um, putting calorie counts or like um, if you put on cigarette um, boxes that nicotine causes cancer, I think that just putting purely factual information in and requiring transparency from companies is a great way of nudging. I would stop short at approving nudging when it comes to any kind of advocacy on part of the government. So like the FDA puts out a bunch of these Spotify ads about how you shouldn't smoke and how it's bad for you. I think that that's fine for smoking, but I think it can devolve into a gray area very fast. And that's why I'm like hesitant to support, you know, government nudging when it comes to advocacy. But um, then um, onto like the idea of corporations not paying taxes like Amazon. Yeah, that's bad. They should, they should pay taxes. Um, and what I would say is maybe I'm like totally naive, but I think that the issue at play there isn't is is down to one big market failure of capitalism, which is the idea of having money bleed into politics. I think that the idea of having um, corporate lobbyists create kind of you know corporate welfare from a bunch of elected officials and have them 
um, pursue their interests rather than the ones that elected them. I think that that is a huge issue. Um, and that's why I, I think that a lot of the um, issues of um, corporate welfare and of mass inequality, I think a lot of it can stem down to uh, lobbyists working on behalf of the ones who are economically empowered. Um, and I think that if you were to kind of get rid of that part of capitalism, it'll work a lot better and you wouldn't see a lot of these corporations get so much support and leniency from the government. Yeah, I think, well, I guess on just really quickly on the Nudges stuff, because we're balancing like two conversations here, but like on the Nudges stuff, yes, I agree more or less with Adrian. And also like with controversial topics, um, I think there would just be like, instead of having no nonprofits advocating, there would just be one nonprofit advocating for one side and another one advocating for another side and the people would just believe whatever they want to believe. Um, but then on like the corporation stuff, yes, I totally agree with Adrian. I think the biggest, like the fact is that like the clearest like cut and dry example of like corruption or even just the fact that like Amazon is not really acting in the best interest is the fact that it pays zero in taxes. But the fact that like taxes are extremely high to begin with would mean that like it's kind of a government created problem in that the government by allowing money to go, or, sorry, not like a government created problem, but more like the idea of money in politics creates corruption that ultimately leads to, I think, two main things. The first is that it creates like inherent monopolies because if you're able to lobby the government to then like, for example, uh, I think that like, there was at least some instance before where Amazon and other giant corporations lobbied the government to impose more restrictions on small businesses so that small mm -hmm. businesses grow and challenge Amazon or any other company. So the fact that that works, I think is a huge, like, like huge, um, problem with like the current system that we have set up and i don't think like i wouldn't even classify it as capitalist i would just say it's just corruption but even beyond that i think also the fact is that like um it creates the other problem with having money in politics and especially corporate money in politics is that it ends up creating i say the worst type of income inequality because it's a type of income inequality that occurs when corporations are not actually creating more wealth Instead, they're creating systems that redistribute the taxpayer dollars towards them. Mm -hmm. It's a scenario in which case, like in, in a purely capitalist system, I say the most likely form of inequality that arises, of course, if you're like more wealthy, then you're going to like gain wealth faster. I think that's an area of income inequality that will occur with any sort of capitalist system. But the fact is now that the most common form of inequality is not one in which producing more goods it's just one in which people are lobbying the government to give them more money and that inherently produces profit it gives it to the shareholders and that allows them to grow but it doesn't create like a better society interesting so i guess like the question i totally agree with um what both of you said i don't think money should be in politics at all but i guess um for you too the question that i would ask is that do you think in a purely capitalist system that this situation of money being in politics could be avoided I think so. And I think that there's two ways to go about it. Um, firstly is to, if you want to get money out of the system, like honestly weaken the system. I think like what Sid was saying is about how like a bunch of regulations that are already in place in these like thousand and thousand page long regulatory books, it's so easy for companies to slide in these loopholes that benefit them and no one notices. It's these kind of like bloated, huge, like iron triangle fed bureaucracies that create opportunities for corporations to go in and do their meandering. 
Um, but then secondly, of course, is like the more like um, progressive led solution, which is to just like um, ban certain contributions from corporations and to like use a more like punitive regulatory approach to money and politics. And I think that that's fine too. I think it can be a two-pronged approach to sort of one, work at how much government is actually monitoring industry when it doesn't really have to. And two would be to go for that kind of progressive means of, um, you know, um, punitive measures against companies. But I'm not actually well versed on what progressives advocate for on campaign finance reform. It's kind of like this buzzword of, oh, we're going to push for campaign finance reform. But I don't actually know what that is, but I'm, I would support whatever, whatever that is. Yeah, that sounds good to me. Yeah, I think. I don't know much, like like Adrian said, but I guess as Citizens United case, I think that was like decided mm-hmm. in that like companies classify as people and therefore they're allowed to lobby the government to, and pay politicians for like, because they're people too, or I, I don't remember exactly remember the case, but like, I don't support it. And yes, I would support like, just, I, I think the simplest solution if you don't want money in politics, and that isn't really an extension of capitalism to any degree, it's just corruption and that should just be banned and in whatever form that happens like I'm, I'm okay with that. I just asked that question because I feel like I don't know I define capitalism pretty much by like free market and letting the market do what mm-hmm. it want right so I think in my opinion in a purely capitalist system where you're letting the free market doctrine um, do its magic I think it's pretty inevitable that money ends up in politics right because I think consider money and politics as another separate market. And I think that's why I think it's really hard to separate um, capitalism and politics without, to some extent of having like creating laws, like government intervention, like what you two said. So I don't know, in a purely capitalist system, I think that's my problem with capitalism at its like very core and like the, you know, the doctrines that set up capitalism. But yeah, yeah Adrian. Like, oh yeah, I think the only thing is that like, I think a purely capitalist system is pretty much anarchy. And I think that's like, that's how I would define it. And in that case, like you can't there's have no politics. politics. There's no yeah. politics. <laughs> like that, that's, yeah. So that's, I think like the imposition of like, I'm not saying like the government is always the antithesis of like capitalism, but what I am saying is that like a purely capitalist system, Milton Friedman, Friedman divided, like defined it this way too, but like a purely capitalist system is literally an anarchy there's no government and Mm -hmm. there's no money in politics everyone just does whatever they want no restrictions the wild west so yeah i don't support that i think a government has a role to play like i think adrian and i have discussed a lot of times on this show about ubi and how we both support it and how we think that it's a really good solution so yes i think like the government does have some role to play and yeah so i guess that's what that's what my two cents would be there Mm -hmm. yeah what i was going to add is that I, i think the idea that like um, the only way to get rid of money in politics is to get rid of the money, I think is like not the correct way to look at it. I think that again, like money in politics has two specific terms to it. There's both money and politics. So I think if you go to like one, there's the extreme end, which is complete like anarcho-capitalism in which there's just money and no politics. Then there's like complete control communism where there's just politics and no money. But I think that like, for example, when you look at the idea of like the Soviet Union or North Korea or whatever, even though they don't have any sort of like capitalist free market economy, they are some of the most corrupt societies ever imagined. I think that there's still like the idea of the more government, the more bureaucracy, the more control, the more command, the more potential there is for corruption. And also like um, the more potential there is for things like racism. 
maybe we can like start to talk about that a little bit because it's, it's a big issue right now. I mean, it's always a big issue, but we're talking about it a lot now. Um, and like, um, I think my contention with regards to that is that if you have systemic racism, you should just throw out the whole system. The, the idea of like um, using government to fix government created racism problems, I think doesn't really seem logical to me because um, the bigger the government, the bigger pervasiveness and like permissiveness for um, prejudice and racist individuals to like insert themselves in the bureaucracy there is. And that's, that's how you create a lot of the issues. I guess, um, yeah, more or less, I would agree. Like, but also I would also say that like, to some degree, I mean, like Adrian and I have talked extensively about how like, in general, we would support not necessarily like race-based like policies, but more like policies that help those who are worse off in the society, because that will inevitably help fix historical inequalities that have occurred and historical injustices that have occurred largely as a result of the government. Like the fact, like the fact that we had the government in the first place that like has created so many of these injustices, Jim Crow, slavery, et cetera, right? All of that has been really, really terrible. And I think it is, I think the idea that you can just throw the entire government out and then hope that like in the end, it'll all work itself out. I don't think that can necessarily work. In my opinion, I think the best solution would be one to help those who like very, very obviously not doing like the best in the capitalist society and ensure that they at least have, you know, like the basic human needs that someone would need, food, water, et cetera. Yeah, Adrian, I was just going to say, when you said throw a whole system out, like, you sound a lot like this um, Afro-pessimist philosopher known as Frank B. Wilderson. Um, he essentially <laughs> advocates for the burning down of civil society, which is, like, do away with the whole system. So, yeah, that's yeah. what I thought of. And I think, Sid, I would echo what you said. Like, I think having the government and using the system to solve systemic issues is a viable option. And so, like, just, you know, having, bringing in this, like, side of, like, racism, a lot of people would argue that it's actually capitalism um, that led to a lot of racist policies in the first place. And a lot of people have debated about this. And a lot of people argue that um, capitalism is actually the root cause of slavery. And obviously, there are some people who like disagree with it and say that racism is just racism and there wasn't any like capitalist like, you know, intention. But mm -hmm. I think the argument for it makes a lot of sense, right? Because when slaves were brought over to um, America and South America and all these other places, like the motivation for that was basically free labor. Um, and I think a lot of people draw parallels between slavery and feudal society. Like it's definitely not the same thing, but in essence, that kind of structure of exploiting workers was applied to black folk in Africa, except they took it to a whole another extreme. And so I think I believe in the idea that capitalism is the root cause, a lot of the root causes of racism, um, especially with the history and explaining slavery, which is, I guess, another reason why I would consider myself as like pretty anti-capitalist because I think capitalism, in my opinion, is not only an economic system, but it has become just a, a system. Like it's not only relegated to economics. And I think, under the guise of economic policy, capitalism is allowed to pursue some of these more racist policies, whether it be like Jim Crow or whether it be 
like housing, uh, mass incarceration. Like if we think about it, there's always an economic side to it. With mass incarceration, one of the benefits of it is obviously prison labor. You can exploit these workers, pay them $2 a day and have free labor. Um, I mean, it's still within the constitution, right? Like we can use slavery as a form of punishment. And so when I think about it in that sense, that's um, another reason why I think I really don't like capitalism because it has stretched itself um, to be a lot more encompassing than just the economic system that people first described it um, to be. Um, and I think, yeah, like I think a lot of people would also agree, um, anyone who is like pretty staunchly um, progressive um, sees the intertwining between these two issues. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that my, my view on like how slavery and capitalism intertwine is that um, I will only ever advocate for honest and voluntary capitalism. And slavery is the absolute like opposite of voluntary for obvious reasons. So I think that, um, yeah, that's definitely an issue. The ability to like coerce someone into doing an exchange of goods is obviously like shouldn't be allowed within capitalism. And that's again, a reaching of the rules of the game that the government should set. I think that that's like, that, that makes sense to me. But um, the idea of like how capitalism perpetuates um, racism is one that's I, I've heard before and I've thought about it a lot. And um, what Milton Friedman said is this, is that when there's a shop owner trying to like sell a product to someone, um, he doesn't care if the person is um, what race they are. He doesn't care if they're black, white, Asian, whatever. He just sees some a, a patron is going to give him a profit. And that when you, when you get rid of um, any sort of other consideration and only allow for profit, you also like get rid of the consideration of race. So it's the idea that companies are out for one goal and one goal only, which is to make money. And as insofar as that's true, if, like if we're going to say that that is their only goal, it is completely idiotic for them to ever not allow certain customers of one race to buy, to buy something from their store because they're just losing profit. So I think that um, the free market is a lot better at um, fighting racism than the government is because again, the government is this one entity, which when it becomes corrupt and racist, you can't do anything about it. Like the idea of how the police become racist, um, you know, that's the, the government can like use, they can hold you at gunpoint and like you have to go along with their racist policies. But within the free market, you know, it's, it's stupid for a company to ever not cater to a certain customer because of their race. It's stupid for um, them to turn down that profit. Um, so I think that like the, the freedom of the free market is a lot better um, to combat racism than the government is, but maybe Sid can comment on that. Yeah, sure. I'd say like, um, to some extent I agree, which is that like, I think that capitalism is, I guess one of like the m less racist systems that we've come up with, because like, I agree, like if a government, let, let's say like in some scenario, uh, Jim Crow, like during Jim Crow times, if there was like a government like redlining all of those other policies that the government created, there's no getting around that. You have to like follow it. But also I would say that even within the capitalist system, culture plays such a huge like factor into that, that it's, uh, it creates like, it kind of disincentive, it uh, creates like, I, I don't exactly know what this is like, how to phrase it, but it doesn't allow for pure profit motive, like the one that Adrian's describing. I think like Hannah talked about this too, in that like there was a culture that you don't advertise to children, even though that would technically be profitable, right? And the reason why was because, and I think like the biggest reason why that didn't happen was because if a company did, right, uh, 
advertise to children, then it would lose a bunch of other patrons who are supporting that culture and they don't want to see that happen. In the same way, you can apply that to, for example, during Jim Crow times, a lot of the laws weren't laws, they were just cultural norms that everybody agreed with. So yes, maybe you could, maybe like a shop owner still sees like, even if a shop owner isn't racist, they still wouldn't serve an African-American because all of their white patrons would leave. And if that happens, that's a complete perversion of the profit incentive. And it means that capitalism really can't solve for that. Unless, for example, that like, unless that person who was denied service can just go somewhere else. And that's not always this, the case. And I, I think like um, what we were talking about um, libertarianism with Brandon Pan, he mentioned that like it pays to be progressive nowadays. Um, so the idea that companies put forth initiatives to um, work on equities or, or to um, be more racially sensitive and, and all these initiatives to make them seem like they're not racist and they're working towards equality. Um, I think that the, the culture aspect, when you look at it today, is really only beneficial. Um, unless I'm totally ignorant and you guys can come up with examples of like nowadays when it pays to be racist, I can't think of that ever happening. And in my eyes right now, today, it pays to be anti-racist. I, I can't really think of like that many scenarios. Um, obviously, I mean, like, I think like the racism of before has kind of shifted more like today, not into necessarily racism, but it's shifted into a pretty, pretty like, if it's a purely capitalist system, then the people who started off farther behind are going to end up farther behind now. And I think like, yes, I don't think that there are like explicitly racist policies that are currently in the government. And I also don't think that there are like that many racist shop owners who are just never going to serve African-Americans or just like, I think, yes, again, it does pay to be anti-racist in the current culture, but it still doesn't rectify the fact that like, it's like the racial wealth gap is not a result of like uh, inequality that happened today. It's a result of inequality that happened like years ago that is now still, that is now still prevalent today. So Hannah, I'm not sure if you want to weigh in on that, but yeah. And yeah, I totally agree with that, with that, but I also think what companies are doing is what a lot of people would describe as performative activism. Um, they aren't actually pursuing meaningful policies that will um, truly reverse the terrible racism that this country is facing. It's only like on paper, like very small, tiny things that make it say, oh, like, look, we aren't racist, but in reality, um, yeah, like what they're doing behind the scenes, like inequalities, um, I think, I don't know. I think the inequalities, especially um, the wealth inequality that corporations create, do further to also, you know, make it so that black and brown bodies are further behind. Um, and obviously, this isn't only like the companies or the corporations fault. But I think what the companies do, if they aren't being actively anti-racist, is that they're only contributing and feeding the system that, you know, in turn comes back to harm minority communities the most. And so, um, yeah, and I also think like, even if capitalism um, doesn't necessarily pursue racist companies because the for-profit model like obviously would, um, you know, not, like what you said, if um, companies don't sell to um, a black individual, like it wouldn't do them any good. But I think part of the reason why, you know, racism is so ingrained, especially in American society, has in part to do a lot with the legacy of slavery. And um, obviously, this gets into a huge debate of like, is 
you know, is racism something that is inherent or has it been, you know, fed or learned um, and ingrained within our society? And so I think the legacy of slavery um, is a reason as to why we still have racist policies and why we've seen racist policies like Jim Crow. I think it's been taught, right, and ingrained. And so I, I think, in my opinion, that that's really the intertwining of capitalism racism. Capitalism and the legacy of slavery, in my view, is what started this legacy of racism, especially in America. And it's, you know, essentially normalized, I guess. Like, it's like the seed, and then somehow through, like, like years and years of racism, it's just become ingrained within society. And so even if necessarily, like, capitalism isn't the one that's still, like, pursuing racist policies, like, corporations aren't necessarily the ones that are like, you know, we should have mass incarceration, but the fact that they profit off of it, um, and the fact that they exploit it regardless, I think is where my problem with capitalism lies. Like, I, the legacy of racism, in essence, to me, started with capitalism, and to this day, capitalism continues to exploit, um, those who have been put down by the legacy of slavery. And so I totally get your point, um, and I totally agree with you. I don't think it's necessarily capitalism and it wouldn't make sense for them to pursue racist policies. But the fact that they're still exploiting um, the consequences of racism, I think is still very problematic. And why, um, for me, I have a really hard time reconciling capitalism and not being racist like together like the two just don't mix um in my opinion could you maybe like expand on what kind of like present day exploitation like because i i genuinely like want to know I, i'm not really educated on this like what is currently going on where companies profit off of racism i think so obviously mass incarceration is a huge part of it but i think it's not necessarily also profit off off of um racism but I think companies, you, like, it's impossible for, like, let's say individual recruiters, right? Obviously, it will, for some recruiters, it'll be really difficult to unlearn um, racist things and ideologies that they've internalized. But I think um, if companies aren't doing anything active to do, like, bias training or enforce values of diversity, um, equality, and inclusion within the company, that allows it so that individual people are able to be racist um, and obviously still contribute to racism. Like, there was a study done that said, like, essentially, if you have, like, a Black-sounding name or, like, an ethnic name, you're less likely to get return calls, right? And so I think that's a product of people not being properly trained um, to reconcile whatever internalized like implicit biases they might have. And if companies aren't doing that for these individual um, employees, then what are they doing? They're still continuing that legacy of racism, right? That means that people are still going to see these like black and brown folks or like ethnic sounding names as like less than. And then what what's the consequence of that? That means it makes it a lot harder for those minority communities to overcome the gaps that they already have and it further contributes to these lines of racialized poverty that we see today and so i think um just like expanding upon what i said about like companies exploiting there are like direct forms of exploitation then there are these like smaller things that companies do that contribute to um furthering racism in society i think and so obviously like corporations not choosing to do that I can't blame it on capitalism, but I think for me, it's really hard to separate um, corporations and capitalisms so that so that I see it as like 
capitalism, you know, continuing this trend of racism. But yeah, that's something that's like my opinion. And obviously, it's not a direct fault of capitalism as much as it is as, you know, ignorant corporations. Yeah, I say like, just to kind of like, follow up on that. I mean, I guess like, I guess the biggest distinction I can draw from that is that like, capitalism is so ingrained in our society right now that pretty much anything that a corporation does seems like capitalist, I think. But I mean, I guess this is where like, like getting a pretty clear defined definition of like what the capitalist components are and what they aren't matters. But even beyond that, I think like in general capitalism and it does best when there's a culture that it, when there's like a good culture surrounding it. So it, like, again, like for example, capitalism would perpetuate racism if the culture in general, like surrounding it was racist. For example, what like Hannah said, through like individuals who have implicit biases against uh, ethnic sounding names, right? That is a product of the culture that they have been brought up in. And I, I think like, I would hesitate to say that that's the fault of capitalism. I would more on, I would like probably say that like, that's a fault of the culture. And I'd say that the bigger, like a bigger flaw would be if, for example, like let's say most of society had that implicit bias, which I think is like in general a contention that is made right now. Then if those people were now given power via a government, right, over everybody else, that would lead to even worse inequalities and it would further a system that's like even worse, which is why I'd say that like, um, I'd say that like capitalism, yeah, and like I said, that capitalism flourishes in area, in cultures which are equipped and cultures that treat everybody equally. Otherwise, I'd say, yes, it, there is a profit incentive and like there, it perverts the profit incentive, I'd say. That's pretty interesting. I've never actually thought of how like capitalism essentially absorbs the culture around it. I think that that's, that's pretty smart. Um, and uh, like alluding back to what I said earlier, I think it's a question of um, when everyone has implicit biases and it's ingrained in our culture, it's a question of do you give these people with implicit biases the power to coerce at gunpoint? Because when you allow for the government to take over like a lot of these practices, now all of a sudden, again, these implicitly biased people have the power to coerce you at gunpoint. Meanwhile, within a free market where there's freedom of choice and, and it's voluntary and you have the freedom to leave, um, you are still able to shop around for essentially the least like biased uh, or the least racist enterprise if that's what the consumer is looking for. Um, so I think that um, definitely within our culture, implicit bias is totally ingrained. I think that within capitalism and within command economies, they both can per perpetuate racism. But what I would say is that the like better of the two evils in dealing with that kind of racism would be capitalism, again, because of that ability to um, ability to leave and, and that freedom of choice and not to be coerced at gunpoint to comply with racism, for example, is what I would say. Yeah, and I think the biggest thing the government can do is ensure that people have the ability to leave. If you're stuck in like some, if you're stuck in some like rural community where you basically have like no roads, no money, no way to get out of that community, and that community is for some reason biased against you or your culture or your family, you're kind of screwed. And there's, even if it's like technically a capitalist society, you're not going to improve. You're not going to be able to get out of there. So mm -hmm. that's why, like, I think the biggest thing that capitalism could do is, or the biggest thing that the government can do to further, like, to make capitalism beneficial for all is to ensure that people have the ability to, you know, move around, have the ability to choose whatever they want with no UBI. Fear, 
it's going to be yeah exactly ubi is the like mm -hmm. i think the clearest example of this because it means you can move if there's a racist community it means that you can ensure that like if you lose your job you're still going to have some level of income you're not going to be completely in poverty you're going to be able to afford some basic things and and also like the fact that you have to control monopolies and i think adrian and i have talked about this before which is that like if there's a monopoly formed you the government it's their job to ensure that that monopoly doesn't harm consumers via breaking it up antitrust mm -hmm. laws Right. So there are a lot of ways in which government can control the rules of the game. But yeah, I guess I would say like it shouldn't really play because if it plays, then it just furthers on the culture. And if the culture is bad, the government is exponentially worse than a capitalist system. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think like getting back to the idea of, of when government should regulate, um, I think really goes back to the idea of voluntary and honest. So I think that monopolies and externalities are the biggest um, ways that you accentuate um, involuntary nature in capitalism because in, in a monopoly, the consumer doesn't have the um, voluntary option to not patronize that company. So that's bad. That should be, right. that should be like regulated against. Um, within an externality, which is when a non-voluntary third party is affected by an exchange between two people, um, the idea is, for example, like carbon emissions where you pollute the air and then a third, third party gets hurt. Um, again, the government would need to step in there to make sure that it's voluntary. Um, and uh, maybe like Hannah, we haven't really asked you for your policy prescriptions because like maybe we can get into that now because again, what I would say is the only point in which the government intervenes is to rectify uh, monopolies, negative externalities, and to ensure transparency. Um, do you think that we should do more than that? Um, and what should that look like? So I actually, this is something that I've like thought a lot about to myself too, like how much I want the government to be involved, like just to be like pretty clear um, on the political compass, I am left-leaning and I am a libertarian. Um, so you could see why that causes a lot of problems for me because mm -hmm. I think a lot of like more leftist people think like leftist people want a little bit more authoritarian and want more a little bit more government intervention. Mm -hmm. And so I think Adrian, what you said, that's absolutely a starter. Um, but for me personally, I think I would want more government intervention, but only on like a case by case basis. I don't want blindly like the government should be involved in like everything. But I think depending on like which specific advocacy and like which areas, I think in some areas, government intervention is more necessary than um, other areas. Like purely if we're talking only about like um, corporations, I think what Adrian said of like, you know, antitrust laws, I think that's probably the extent that I want government to be involved when dealing with like how big corporations to get like I don't want them to start prescribing other like little like nitty-gritty standards um, for corporations and like definition of corporations how many corporations we want but I think in other areas um, especially with regards to medicine um, and health I think medicine and healthcare is one area capitalism should be minimized the most it makes absolutely no sense to me as to how people want to profit off of people's illnesses like that that idea just makes me pretty like mad i think because like you're you know prescribing a worth to people's lives which i fundamentally disagree with so i think in that area for example i would want a lot more government involvement to say like you know, put caps on how much insurances can charge, outlaw certain practices, like, you know, like you can't put risk factors and then change the amount that people have to pay based on those risk factors because people's genes aren't something that, you know, they can control even if they wanted to, right? And so my definition 
or like my policy prescriptions, I guess you could summarize is um, have a bare minimum of government intervention and then inject more government intervention in areas that are necessary. And so I'm still figuring out what exactly and how exactly I want the government to um, fulfill its role in all of these other um, sectors. But yeah, I think that's my general take on government involvement. Yeah, I, I would say like for my take, I, I, I guess I get kind of agree that like, yes, minimal involvement should be like, should be present, right? Some level of minimal involvement. But I think like that also includes in order to like play the rule, play the game of capitalism, you need to be able to like choose. And I think that there are a lot of scenarios in which the current system we have set up perverts that, which is that first, like if you are dependent on your job for all of your income and you lose your job, then you are basically, or you can't lose your job. So you're basically tied to that employer. Same goes for healthcare. If you're dependent on your job for healthcare and you have some sort of pre-existing condition, then you need that healthcare, therefore you can't leave the job. And there are a lot of scenarios in which this is true. And I think like, um, I guess even with, even like specifically in the field of healthcare, I think the government should again, provide the bare minimum, which is that you should never like have to worry about your health, like based off like a basic condition, but for like more advanced surgeries, or I guess like, yeah, for more advanced surgeries or whatever, like uh, elective procedures, those shouldn't be like subsidized by the government. Instead, those should just be elective and you should pay for them if you want them. And like that, I think that's the clearest road for me for healthcare because that ensures that in those elective areas and in general, like there's still innovation because you want a good innovative like, like uh, healthcare industry because that creates the best outcomes for health. But then I think uh, at this point for your basic health, there's not that much innovation that goes on and that should be subsidized at this point. I'm, I'm like skeptical of ever branding any tangible good as a right to people. Because I think like the, the field of economics is based on the idea of scarcity, that we have unlimited wants and limited resources, right? So um, the idea of establishing some like good like healthcare as a right, I think I'm skeptical to ever have that happen because again, in a world of scarcity that can never actually pan out as we want it to. Um, so that, that's why I think like the idea of inviting capitalism into healthcare like is pretty like unintuitive at first, but I really think that um, the idea of allowing for like price competition and to like lower prices in that way is, is helpful because um, there's this graph that I actually have like, I have it saved on my phone because I, I look at it so much and it's interesting, which is that um, when you look at certain, um, the price of certain goods over time, I think it was starting from the 90s until now, um, the ones that have skyrocketed way past inflation um, are um, healthcare costs, um, education costs, housing costs, and basically everything that the government heavily subsidizes and pokes and prods at, um, the price has absolutely skyrocketed. Meanwhile, all a bunch of consumer goods that the government doesn't touch up a lot, things like um, computers, furniture, clothing, et cetera, they've actually gone down like um, with respect to inflation since the 90s. Um, and I think that the reason why that is because once you start to bring the government into it and you lose that incentive to be efficient and to reduce your costs, then costs just skyrocket. That works in the healthcare industry where there's tons of, again, like crony capitalism and subsidies, et cetera. And that's why it skyrocketed. Um, in education, the idea of the federal student loans guarantee created this huge, huge exponential growth in college prices. Because again, now colleges don't compete for your dollar because they know that you can get student loans to pay for it. So I think that 
like the, the, the idea of like profiting off of one's education, one's health, one's housing, etc., sounds like super unethical. But I think that like once you look at the actual like uh, manifestations of what that looks like, it tends to be much better than the alternative. So I think that like my general um, idea of capitalism is that it's a lot harder to get behind because it sounds so unethical. Um, but in the end, it's like, it's an, imp it's an imperfect system that creates the best results. So I think my problem is that capitalism is only good if you allow for price competition. And that's only mm -hmm. if like you have a lot of different, you know, companies or firms that are able to provide those services, right? Um, but if you have like a single company, um, and I think capitalism in essence allows for big corporations and monopolies to grow because mm -hmm. fundamentally capitalism thrives on innovation and entrepreneurship and that innovation and entrepreneurship is rewarded by a single person you know coming up with an idea the science like it's this happens especially in science i think so i'm going to limit that mm -hmm. discussion to science and like medicine but then you have like one person who creates a single drug that got it patented so it's like difficult for people to like replicate that and you know even have price competition and then you have people like you know, making diabetes pills like $600 um, and completely unaffordable. And so I think what you described, Adrian, sounds absolutely perfect. And if there, if there was like, you know, a scenario, if every scenario was that we could have price competition and drive prices down and make it best for the consumer, like obviously that would be a system that a lot of people, you know, want to get behind with. But I think the realities of capitalism does not match up with the promise of capitalism. And I think where I like am, you know, would want to rethink capitalism is at what point does the government get involved to stop monopolies from forming, even though innovation and the tenets of capitalism reward that. So maybe we need to like rethink of it as having like a hybrid capitalism system or something. But I think what you described is perfect, except that's not the reality of capitalism often. Yeah, I think like, I mean, like what we've discussed before, of course, like pure capitalism, I don't think any of us support, but I think we all support like some sort of government intervention and like monopolies are a perfect example. Like uh, I know there was an antitrust case against AT&T that led to the emergence of all of the other like phone, uh, all of the other like phone carriers that we have right now. And now I don't think that many people are complaining about like their cell phone bill anymore. So like, it's like those areas in the areas where it's not a necessity in the areas in which you can survive without it, it makes a lot more sense to just say like the government should just back off. Like there shouldn't really be like, they shouldn't care that much, but in the areas where human lives are involved, there has to be like, I can definitely see the, like Adrian's point that healthcare costs skyrocket but there's also the point of like if you're looking at those top level figures even if healthcare costs stayed the same it doesn't mean that everybody is able to afford the same level of healthcare it just means that in general the costs are about the same and it still means that the poorest of the poor are not able to afford it and it still means that the richest of the rich are able to afford a lot more so yeah and that's like that's i think something we have to balance and that's I think the balance that I've come to in my mind is that for basic things and the things that like you need to just maintain your health, right? That should be like, that should be subsidized and the government should at least have some level of involvement in that. And in every other sector, in every other area, which is not necessary, like necessary for a human to live, that shouldn't be because that leads to exactly what Adrian was talking about, which is the lowest level cost and the highest quality good.
Yeah, I think that there are like two dimensions to capitalism and government, how they intersect. I think one of them is the idea of like economic regulation and government setting rules. The other is the idea of like government creating safety net programs and spending on welfare, et cetera, and like all, 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 that, all that stuff. I think that those are two separate things. Um, one thing that I would always promote is competition and, and deregulation, unless it's monopolies or externalities. Um, and then um, when it comes to like welfare and, and how the poor can't afford um, healthcare costs, even if they're going down, that's totally true. I think that you need intervention to be able to fix that market failure. Um, for example, having um, what a lot of like capitalists always um, advocate for is the idea of like vouchers, for example. So implementing a health savings account for those who um, can't afford healthcare immediately. That, they did that in Singapore and it works very well. The idea of introducing education vouchers so certain students can choose which school they wanna to go to also is something that would work for me. So I think that the idea of like competition itself isn't the issue. Um, a lot of times the issue is that certain like people that are poor don't have access to these like um, things that are integral to their life. And at that point, yes, I totally agree. Government should empower these lower income consumers to be able to play in the market economy um, through certain measures like vouchers or a UBI or any kind of like um, things that empower them to interact more with that competition. But I guess like with poverty, um, I think I think a lot of my faults with capitalism actually come down, can be summarized as capitalism is often the root cause of a lot of these issues. Like with poverty, um, I think I attribute a lot of that to um, capitalism, right? Because capitalism, um, encourages wealth accumulation, which in further, like, you know, increases the wealth gap and furthers poverty. Um, and so I think maybe that is my bias that because I think of like capitalism being like the root cause of a lot of these issues, I don't see how the benefits of, you know, how capitalism can reduce the consequences of the things that they've essentially set up and perpetuated. Um, but yeah, I think like, I think with that dilemma, it comes back to what I think Sid said, like, or Adrian, did you say like the system, can we use a system to like fix the issues that the system has created in the first place? Um, and I don't know, for capitalism, I think I have, a, at least right now, I have a really hard time believing that capitalism can be the solutions to a lot of these issues, which I think capitalism, um, even if it doesn't, hasn't necessarily started it, has perpetuated it to a great extent. One thing I'll bring up, I'm, I'm not sure if you've, I'm sure you, like it's kind of intuitive, but um, like the, a lot of capitalists and libertarians always cite the hockey stick example. Um, it's the idea of like societal wealth for a long time, which is kind of constant. And then all of a sudden it picked up like a hockey stick and it went like way up. Um, and that's when we started implementing capitalist policies. Um, and I think the idea that capitalism created poverty and hierarchy is true. But what I would say is that capitalism is the only thing ever to create wealth in the first place. So um, what I would always say is that unequal levels of wealth is always preferable to equal levels of poverty. And I think that capitalism creates wealth, yes, but it's unequal. But I would say that that's totally preferable to back when we didn't have capitalist societies and um, everyone was just poor. Like there's been no like time in history when we've ever had such great rapid advancement of human living conditions. And I think you can attribute almost all that to capitalism. And I think that um, the reason why I, um, I'm hesitant to totally like um, blame inequality as a huge issue is because, again, I think that unequal wealth will always be better than um, equal poverty. I think what the thing that you're saying about like living conditions going up, I think that is Pickner's study. Um, 
And the problems with, well, at least Pickner's, Pickner's studies say that, like, you know, in general, um, living conditions have gone up for everyone. But then behind the scenes of that, like, we only see that one graph. But if we look at it, the poorest of the poor have only gotten poor. Even if, like, in general, people are living better now, the people who are always left behind are just living in worse conditions. And I don't think capitalism incentivizes anyone to help those people. Because what profit are we going to get out of helping the poor? Um, I don't think the answer is very clear. And so I think if we think of like pure capitalism in its sense of like free market um, and wealth accumulation, I don't think it can really solve, um, you know, the issues that it's created, which is why I think a more democratic socialist thinking um, is able to rectify those issues. And for me, at least, um, I think I value the lives of the people who are left behind um, a lot, um, especially when we compare it in terms of like wealth and general wealth and like the population that's been left behind, which is why I think, um, you know, capitalism isn't the best answer. But in an ideal situation where um, we didn't have these issues and capitalism, we could incentivize ways to reduce poverty using capitalism, I think capitalism easily could be the economic solution and like the best solution and obviously communism hasn't worked out for anyone so uh, no one is advocating in favor of that but i also think um one of the reasons like i think a lot of capitalists like rely on is like it's the best system we've found so far um yet like we aren't really i in my opinion i don't think we're really innovating it um and we're relying a little bit too much on the free market to dictate um, how we respond to capitalism. Like it can't just be, the system can be the answer to all of our solutions. We've got to tweak the system at least a little bit um, to find the solutions to our problems. Yeah, and I kind of wanted to like go on that. I guess this is I, kind of unrelated, but I guess really quickly on what Hannah said, which is that I think, if I'm gonna be honest, I think capitalism will always create inequality. I don't think there's a scenario that I can imagine in which it doesn't, just because like, but like what Adrian said, which is that if there is like unequal levels of wealth versus equal levels of poverty, right? I still would say I prefer the equal levels of wealth, although or unequal levels of wealth. Although I think that has to be balanced with the idea of like, I mean, I think so far it is like more or less ben like more beneficial than the alternative because like, but otherwise I think inequality does create one issue which I have read about. And it's something that's very prevalent in a bunch of other like societies, not necessarily the United mm -hmm. States, but a lot of, I think, uh, countries in Africa suffer from the problem, which is that when there is massive levels of inequality, like huge African warlords who hoard all of the wealth and everybody else doesn't have anything, then even if there is like technically a capitalist system, the all of the profits go to the rich because the poor, because the rich are able to pay the most amount for it. And that creates massive levels of inflation so that nobody can afford it. And that drives up prices way beyond the people's increase in societal well-being or their increase in wealth. So that's why I think like that has to be balanced. And I think that like currently, in my opinion, like if the Pickner study is true, that everybody who is like gaining, like that people living now are living, like even if they are the poorest of the poor, they're better off now than they were like 50 years ago. If that is true, then I'd say that like, yes, we are accomplishing that, but there's also the other like factor that we have to balance, which is that inequality creates inflation and it, it creates like unequal distributions and is that something we have to rectify 
Yeah, that inflation argument, I, that's, I haven't heard that. It's interesting. Um, but um, one thing on the idea of the poor getting poorer, uh, I mean, that's probably a global view, um, but I think look like isolating it to the US, um, I think that we obviously all have an issue with um, like the poor getting poorer, but um, one study that I found recently found that the like extreme, extreme poor of the US, the lowest 5% of income earners, earn on average higher than 68% of the rest of the world. And I think that if you look at like American capitalism and, and how it's been able to create insane amounts of economic growth, sure, it's not equal, but I think that um, just the idea that it's still lifted up the poor to be like better off than other like command economies abroad, I still think is, is, is meritorious. And I think that places where like capitalism truly fails is like when, again, it's totally crony. Like in, in all of these African nations, you know, the, the corruption is rampant and, and they'll like, pay off oil barons or warlords or whatever to then create these inequalities. But I think that um, I, I, I wouldn't see that as a symptom of capitalism, but more of a symptom of, again, money and politics and corruption and government coercion at gunpoint, et cetera, and not necessarily the idea of like social mobility. We haven't really touched on that much, but I think that um, the idea of like capitalism needs to incentivize reducing poverty. In, in, inherently it does, because if you're poor, what do you want? You want to be not poor. And the way that you achieve not being poor is through engaging with the market economy by working hard, by um, you know achieving the American dream. And I know everyone says the American dream is now dead, um, but again, what I would attribute that to is to excessive regulation. Because if you're, we're saying the American dream has died, but in that period that it has died, it's been through a, an exponential growth in regulation and exponential growth of government. And I think that when the government um, creates like mandatory um, public schooling first for a kid and doesn't allow them to choose their school to go to. When the government um, makes um, regulations to prevent economic growth in housing or whatever, I think that, again, all of those constrict that social mobility and that the inherent uh, like incentive to reduce poverty and capitalism isn't on an individual level. And that when government creates barriers to achieving like social mobility, that's when capitalism fails. Yeah, I guess to further Adrian's point, I kind of agree there. And I think like the clearest graph for me, although this isn't like causal, it's more correlational, was mm -hmm. a study by Brookings, which found that uh, in the 1940s or like, no, actually sorry, 1920s, I think before, you know, the New Deal, before a bunch of like government welfare programs were ever installed, um, if you were born like where, where actually no matter where on the socioeconomic ladder you were born there was i think greater than a i think it was about a 90 percent chance that you would do better than your parents so you would improve um now well since the government got heavily involved in all with all of these other random programs and there's a huge bloated bureaucracy it's now declined to i think less than 50 percent for people who are born i think in the 1980s or something like that so it's gone down. And I think also, I think there was another study that says it, and especially for like the lowest of the low income, it's really bad because I think it's a study that says that if you're born to the bottom quintile in terms of wealth or income, there's a 50% chance you stay there for the rest of your life. So that's not well, great. I didn't know all of the stats on how like government regulations prevent social mobility. And like just hearing Sid, like just spew out all those facts made me, just really think, wow, the government has failed us um, with regards to allowing people to really, um, you know, succeed. But I also think, like, one of the reasons why I'm in favor of government re regulations that promote social mobility is in cases where 
um, there are systemic issues, especially with like racism that prevent certain groups from achieving that social mobility. And so I think um, with like housing, for example, um, people like black folk and brown bodies weren't able to buy houses in certain locations just because of like homeowners deciding that they didn't want to sell their houses to black and brown folk. But I think because of that legacy, you've created um, areas that are more affluent that are generally white or Asian populated. And then there are, you know, poor areas that are generally populated by black and brown folk. And that's just like a history of um, racism. And so I think with that specific regard, like that is a barrier to social mobility, right? Because those poor areas generally have schools, public school systems that generally aren't as well funded because of property taxes. And then if those students go to those schools, then it's harder for them to achieve a quality education that'll maybe allow them to pursue higher education and like, you know, truly find social mobility. And so I think um, just being cognizant of like those issues is what makes me want to be in favor of government regulations just because with systemic issues like these I think other than you know government intervention there isn't really an alternative that I see like how are we going to use a free market to stop racist people from you know selling homes to black and brown folk. Real quick though wait wasn't it like redlining and zoning laws that created a lot of these like segregated neighborhoods? Yeah I mean obviously yes if we go to the root cause it is government but because of these policies, like, I think, you know, if we have the situation where we do have segregated neighborhoods, then shouldn't the government be involved to promote social mobility? Because otherwise, um, the history of redlining is just going to be that we allow for segregated neighborhoods, even if it's not um, lawful. Um, I still mm -hmm. think that that's the reason why I would prefer the government to be involved rather than letting like, these neighborhoods to either continue going as they are or to have like to wait for a miracle to like turn around all of this but I don't know now that hearing what Sid said I am very conflicted on the benefit of government regulation so that's something for me to figure out as well like where my opinion stands. I actually think well I don't know a lot about housing I think Adrian knows a lot more about housing than I do but with regards to the education point is basically true. If you live in a poor community and the education system is funded through property taxes, you're never going to receive a higher quality education and that perpetuates poverty within the neighborhood. But I think like, I don't know, the solution that I've come to with that is the choice to not go to school in that neighborhood. And it's the choice to essentially pick the school that you want to go to. And that would be, I guess, like in the form of a voucher or whatever system it like that exists. Vouchers, yeah. yeah, it means that basically like people are going to be able to get higher quality education and they bring that back to their community that builds more value and that in turn helps everybody. And I think like uh, the government spends a lot per student education. I think it's $20,000 per year per semester. I don't exactly know. I thought it was but more. It, it, yeah, it's a lot. It's like, mm -hmm. so the question is like, is money necessarily the problem or is it the way that we have our system set up? where people are forced to go to this place. If they want to go to public school, they have to go to the public school that they're located near. And then if these societies have been redlined and whatever, that just perpet that's a, that's a huge systemic problem that we have to rectify. Yeah, I think like the idea that the government spends a certain like huge amount per student, like as the student, why am I not saying where that money spent on me goes? You know, like what, what, why does the government say, okay, you have to go to Leland if I want to spend that money and take it to Valley Christian, for example, and, and then cover the rest with my own money, for example. I think that like 
the idea of like allowing the consumer to choose where they want to go again that promotes more mobility and then prevents like locking neighborhoods again that are maybe majority black or brown into failing schools and all that um, and I think that that's a big component of social mobility is allowing for freedom of choice and not like creating these sort of barriers to then um, stifle the the capitalist process which I think is pretty beautiful but I think when you stifle it then you know it doesn't work I think with regards to education, though, like if you look at charter schools, a lot of charter schools have failed because since they're not regulated by like a district or like some kind of governing body, like they're allowed to do whatever the heck they want with the funds mm -hmm. that they get. And there are plenty of examples as to why, you know, in that I think charter schools are a product of like capitalist imagination, right? Like the freedom of choice, the freedom of like independence. Um, but I think like looking at those examples of failed charter schools and how those funds were mismanaged, like I think that's a case as to why, you know, an education, like some government regulation might be necessary, but also with vouchers. Um, I'm not sure. I'm not well-versed with vouchers. I'm not sure like the extent of like, if it's just, you can go to any school you want. Um, but for poor neighborhoods, I'm not sure how transportation would work to those schools, right? Does the voucher cover transportation to and from the neighborhood? And if it's like further away, then obviously that's, an incentive for schools to not even use, or students to not use those vouchers in the first place. Like, even if you have the option to go to a better school because it's on, to go there, it's unaffordable. Or like, um, you have to work after school and you would have to, you know, get back to your neighborhood to work. Um, and then that's another, like, probably another factor as to why they don't choose to use the vouchers. So I think like in a, in a system as to where, like for privileged folk and people who are in better positions economically I think vouchers are a great idea and like I would have the freedom to choose but I think for people who aren't able to afford even like the implications of taking that voucher um, that's why I would want government regulations to improve the schooling system um, within that local neighborhood so that even if people like if people wanted to get a better education they could get it right there um, within in their communities yeah and I think well, I mean, I, I guess well, we can probably talk a lot more about education, but like that's a huge like area in and of itself. From what I know about education, it's basically like, um, well, yeah, the, there are a lot of tr corrupt charter schools and those ones are especially the ones that kind of divert their funds because normally charter schools are supposed to be nonprofit, which is why you really shouldn't like, okay, yeah, which is why you really shouldn't, um, I, yeah, this is going off on like tangent, but yeah, most charter schools are nonprofits, so you're not supposed to be able to make money off of them, but the then they divert their funds through a third-party company that is able to make profit, and that ends up, like, that kind of screws us over is the thing, and I think, like, yeah, so charter schools are not, like, the best in that scenario, but the good charter schools, they're pretty good in that, like, they actually do create a lot of innovative processes that public schools adopt, so public schools get better, charter schools get better, and, like, yeah, there are a lot of crappy charter schools, and I don't, I'm, I'm not super well-versed on the charter, like, school issue or the voucher issue, but I think, like, that's from what I know. Um, yeah. Yeah, sounds good. Um, I mean, I, I didn't really actually know about um, the idea of third-party companies profiting off of charter schools. That's interesting, but honestly, we could do a whole other episode on that. That's a whole, a whole last discussion. The one thing that I actually did want to, like, mm -hmm. talk to you all about, which was, um, what I've always heard about capitalism is that it's the best scenario, it's the best system to create value. But I'm also wondering, like, um, scenarios, like, I, I guess these are, like, very specific scenarios, but I guess scenarios like the stock market, 
um, scenarios like if you're negotiating with your boss and you're able to negotiate a better wage, even though you're not necessarily producing more work, right? Like how do those scenarios play into the idea of capitalism and like also like the idea of rent collection, rent collection, like what real value are land like uh, landlords like producing? There's a bunch of like scenarios in which you are, you're basically able to profit off of your savvy and off of your intelligence and is even without creating necessarily more value. So should that be valued in a capitalist society? This is the last question I, I had. So yes. Um, I, I think people always like, like to victimize people who go to work on Wall Street, et cetera, and like what all the big banks do and how they are only manipulating currency and they don't actually create any wealth. Um, but I think that like their industry is actually really integral in how our society operates. Like to facilitate the transfer of debt, to facilitate loans, to be able to create a cycle where we can see growth through like debt financing, et cetera, is like really key for our system to, to create growth. The only way you can really create growth is by taking out loans and then by creating wealth to be able to pay those loans back and then create profit. So I think that the idea of like banks and stockbrokers are really important. Um, and then you mentioned like landowners, for example, um, and how they don't create any any sort of wealth. But I mean, again, it, it's a, a system of incentives. So having like land landowners privately versus like a public landowner, um, they have an incentive to reduce prices to compete with each other rather than one like monopoly government that wouldn't be able to reduce prices. I don't know a lot about um, finances or like Wall Street, but I think what Adrian just said makes sense to me like you need banks and you need loans um, in order for growth. I think what I would say is like I would want to see reform in like how credit works specifically just because of how also there are a lot of um, the way that credit is issued and the way that credit is leveraged. You can clearly see that it benefits certain groups of people and not others and so I think maybe not get away with do away with the institution as a whole, but um, reforming it so that it's more equitable is what I'd like to see. Um, but with the stock market specifically, I was talking to a couple of friends about this lately. Mm -hmm. And essentially they were saying that the stock market um, has changed. So now you don't even think about the value of the company, but you like base off your stock and um, based on like your future projections of the, the charting, company. Yeah. Yeah, so like essentially they were like, yeah, the meaning of like the stock market has completely disappeared and it really is like gambling now. Mm -hmm. um, I don't have stocks and I don't like really like the idea of gambling, so I don't indulge in them. Um, but I think that is a very interesting um, thing to like just ponder about, like how did the stock market shift into like the current system that it relies on now? And I think, I don't know, I think the stock market being more on like the future productions of the company is only going to make it more riskier in the future. Um, Cause if the next recession, when the next recession comes, I think it'll be probably a worse hit than 2008 because 2008 was just like housing, right? And then we saw obviously um, what the crash of the stock market did, but now because we don't, we are basing it solely on the future. There isn't, I feel like there isn't any inherent value to the stock itself anymore. That's, it's only completely predicated off of the future. And if like the future trajectory changes because of some event, then I think that stock is going to be a goner, but I don't know anything about stocks. That's just my random like theorization of what implications the stock market could have in the future. Yeah, I mean, I think coronavirus is a pretty obvious example of like a black swan event that kind of tanks stock prices. But I mean, I guess now they're back up. And if they are based on future projections, I guess like 
if there was to be a second wave of coronavirus, that could be pretty bad. There could be a stock market bubble. I don't know. There's a lot of like implications. There's a huge a very, bubble. Yeah, there's a very huge like. There's a lot of implications of all the stuff that we talked about. But I think like, I guess in general, we all say that like capitalism is I think better than communism, and it needs some sort of like, and the government has to play some sort of role. I'd say that's the common ground we've come to. Yeah, I think we we disagree on the extent of the role, but I think we all agree that. There is a role to play and that capitalism has benefits and has shortcomings in that. There is a debate over what are the benefits, how strong are they, and how, how strong are the shortcomings, and how do we balance that with government intervention. So I think we had a very productive conversation. I, I, I enjoyed it a lot. Yeah, thank you, Sid and Adrian. I have to now look into all the things that you mentioned, because who knows, maybe I will swing back towards capitalists <laughs> from the democratic socialist label. But it's been insightful. Thank you. An absolute pleasure. Yeah, we'd love to have you on again sometime. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. of course. Right. Bye. Bye, everyone.